Hello and welcome to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. According to the calendar, it's the fall season here in the U.S., but warm days still persist for a lot of us, which prolongs the battle sheep producers continue to face with internal parasites. More specifically, the gastrointestinal nematode Homoccus contortus continues to be one of the greatest challenges our industry faces. Even though we have addressed the, this formidable foe in past episodes of the Research Update podcast, there is always a need to revisit the best management practices regarding internal parasite control. Not to mention, here in in the U.S., we are very fortunate to have a group of talented scientists who have devoted a large portion of their careers to solving the complex issues that is Homoccus contortus and its effect on small ruminants. With that said, new research findings are ever emerging. Here with me today is a professor of parasite immunology at West Virginia University, Dr. Scott Bowdridge, who is one of those scientists at the forefront of these research efforts. Dr. Bowdridge, thanks for joining me back in our virtual podcast studio. Good to be with you, Jake. So, Dr. Bowdridge, this is your second time uh, on the Research Update podcast, uh, but for any of our listeners that didn't catch you back in June of 2020, uh, would you be willing to remind us of your background and kind of your current roles at uh, West Virginia? Sure. So, uh, I grew up on a small sheep operation in Southern California. My family raised uh, Rambouillet sheep. I got a bachelor's degree from Chico State University in California. I was a high school ag teacher for a little while, and then I went to Maine, and that's where I really kind of got uh, interested in parasites, and I did my master's at the University of Maine, I did a PhD at Virginia Tech, and I did a small, short postdoc at a medical school in New Jersey studying more parasite immunology before I came back into the sheep realm and really started investigating this stuff for the last 10 or 11 years in West Virginia. Okay. Well, how, how did you become interested in, in studying parasite immunology in sheep? So it, for me, it started at a meeting, an extension meeting I was at in Maine. And Charlie Parker from Ohio State and Tom Settlemeyer was a, a professor at Bowdoin College and a sheep producer in Maine were holding a, a conference about parasites. And being from the desert of Southern California, I don't think a parasite really crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. And listening to these guys talk about how devastating this could be, and mind you, this is 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, talking about this. I kind of heckled them from the back row and <laughs> and they wrote me into doing some work with them. And the, and it's uh, just kind of a, been a big blur since then. So we've been going after it, gangbusters. That's cool. Well, we'll dive right into it. Uh, when, we, when we talk about internal parasites of sheep, Hamacus contortus or barber's pole worm gets a lot of the attention. Uh, even in a couple of the previous episodes of this podcast, like I mentioned, why is that? And are there other gastrointestinal nematodes that sheep producers need to be concerned with? So we'll start with the first part of it. Homoncus gets the most attention because it causes the most problems. So it's going to be most pathogenic. You're going to lose more animals to homoncus than you are to other forms of these kind of roundworm parasites that are affecting livestock or sheep in this case. So that's why it does that. Are there other forms of, of worm or, or um, roundworm parasites that affect livestock and can cause some problems? Sure. The cattle industry gets a, a bad rap with uh, Ostratagia, and we've got a similar parasite like that in sheep called Teeler dressagia. 
And the thing that you need to remember is that these things are very environmentally driven. So Ostratagia tends to come out in a cooler season of the year where Homonchus likes it when it's really hot. So the, the presence of those different parasites at different times of year can vary based on the environment. So Ostratagia or Telur dressage in sheep are one, um, Trachostrongylus, another parasite that'll typically cause diarrhea and um, they call it the, the um, bankrupt worm in Australia. So those are the lambs that are going to have diarrhea on more of a, a constant basis. And if feed's not going through, if feed's just flying through them and you've got a high passage rate, then they're not getting good absorption. So it can cause reductions in performance. Um, there are other, there's a whole host of other uh, parasites that affect sheep and we can go through those, but uh, homonchus is the one that's going to cause you the most problems. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the motivating factors for asking that questions is I, I feel like, uh, you know, tapeworms are, are a common question that uh, sheep producers have because they see worm segments in the feces. But my understanding is they're not really a, a major concern in, in small ruminants. Is that no. right? So I, this is the thing. I, I get this a lot at extension events and people ask about tapeworms and and I've talked to the vets and the veterinary parasitologists that study this probably a little bit more than I do. And they all come up with the same conclusion that unless an animal is so loaded that it actually blocks their gastrointestinal tract, right. tapeworms really don't cause that much of a problem. And I think the biggest problem for us from a producer standpoint is we start to apply some, some um, stereotypes to it. So if they have tapeworms, they must have something else right. or yeah. those kind of things. And it also allows us to be the hero. So we can come in, sorry. Um, we can, if you see a worm, you can do something about it. Right. And I think that there's, it's one of those few things, particularly with sheep, when you can have an effect on it. I mean, more often than not, we're, we're dealing with problems so far past any point where we can actually make an effect. This is one of those things where I can give them a, a white dewormer and boom, they're going to shoot them all out. And I did something positive Right. But between that and lambing season. Those are when we have our biggest effect on animals. Okay. Fair enough. Well, we'll, we'll circle back to barber's pole worm. Uh, how exactly does homonchus affect a sheep? So homonchus lives in the host. So just the way it is contracted. So an animal's going to graze. They're going to pick up the infective stage of larvae. Those larvae are going to travel with whatever else the animal's eating and it's going to make it through the the first three components or the compartments of the ruminant stomach and then stop at the the true stomach or the the one that's most like ours. And once it gets there, it's going to take a small blood meal and then grow into a larger worm. So it's going to start at a larval size of about seven-tenths of a millimeter long. And in a period of about two to three weeks, it's going from seven-tenths of a millimeter to two centimeters in the case of female worms. Once they become adults, they're voracious blood feeders. So every worm is going to take about 50 microliters of blood per day. And that really doesn't mean much to people when you talk about that. It's if you ever tried to hold a droplet of water on your fingernail, that's about how much you can hold is 50 microliters. Um, and by itself is not that much blood. Right. You multiply that by a thousand worms. Now you're talking about 50 milliliters. So a Dixie cup full of blood. And even still, you're running large ewes, that may not be that big of a problem. But if you've got 50-pound lambs with that load, that could generate an anemic condition in those animals very quickly. 
So that's why we worry about that. Um, they, um, they just, they're blood feeders and that's what causes that. I've, so my, my best example of this is I, I paid too much for a Suffolk Ram one time. I think we're all guilty of that at some point in our lives. And, and this guy, um, we put him out with use, we dewormed him, we did the whole thing. And I had read about in books, something called acute hemonchosis where animals would die from the larval stage of the parasite and actually not the adult stage. And that's exactly what happened to this guy. So about eight after eight hours after he had died, he had no rigor. And we were looking, we were doing a necropsy on the ram and we couldn't find that all of his tissues were pale. Everything was pale, heart, liver, lungs, kidney, everything was just white and it was odd. And the veterinary looked at me and we were thinking about metabolic disorders that would cause this. And I said, just for, for the heck of it, let's take a look at his gut. And we did. And that's where all the blood in that sheep was. So this 250 pound ram, um, all of his blood was in his gastrointestinal tract and he was bled from the inside out and died from acute hemonchosis. Man. So it can happen that quick. He was on pasture for about seven days and he had so many larvae in his gut and so many larvae that had developed into adult worms so quickly um, that that's what killed him. So that's why we worry about this one more so than some of the other parasites. Sure. And you've touched on it a little bit. And I, I don't want to ask you to dive into everything in, in minute detail, but there are some other external factors that can make a sheep more or less susceptible to hibachus infection too. Is that right? Sure. So... Uh, nutritional status of sheep, right. um, their age. I think in some of your research, some sex, there's some sex differences that, that come to play. And there's obviously breed differences that are going to make animals more or less susceptible to this parasite. Um, we worry about this, particularly in the lamb flock and, and the aged ewe flock or the, or the animals that are a little bit harder to manage. So, or require a little bit more attention. Um, but any of the grazing animals were just always kind of got our antenna up and thinking about homonchus when they're grazing. Sure. So if, if a producer suspects their sheep have a, a high worm burden, what steps should they take to identify that indeed uh, it is a, a gastrointestinal nematode problem? And also how do they determine how severe that infection is? So the, the on-farm and the quick, easy um, shoot-side test for this is just looking at FAMACHA scores. So that's one of the first things that producers can do on-farm is, is to work with your local extension agents, find some FAMACHA training sessions, and to do that. But to actually measure worm burden, and not worm burden per se, but fecal egg output and whether or not you have a problem like that, there are testing centers set up across the U.S. So we're um, our group and... Um, and a number of other universities participate in what's called the American Consortium for Small Ruminant Parasite Control. And as a part of this group, we've kind of set up a low-cost fecal egg counting system. So at Texas A&M, at West Virginia University, um, LSU, and I think Virginia Tech, we will all do fecal egg counts for producers for $5 a sample. And that's one way to identify the or at least quantify the amount of eggs that are in feces that are there. Um, so that's one thing that you can do. If you've got a sheep with a high worm burden or you suspect that they may have that, you can verify that by doing that. And you can do fecal egg counts yourself. And there are 
um, training documents and videos on the um, consortium website um, that can walk you through how to do that. And then we're all available. So anybody in the consortium is happy to ask questions, answer questions and help people that are doing fecal egg counts. Now, if you suspect that your sheep are, uh, you know, have a high worm burden, uh, you know, environmental factors or time of year, that can also kind of help you probably diagnose that, that concern. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, it, if you're feed a lot of a bunch of animals and you think they have worm problems, you might want to rethink right. that. Right. So yeah. we'll start with that. I, I, we run into some, some, um, occasions around here in the wintertime where people get real concerned about worms and really haven't had much worm burden in the dead of January. And, and most of those worms are hypobiotic or kind of in a dormant state at that point, at least in where we are um, in West Virginia. Um, there are environmental factors. So things like um, how close you're grazing to the ground, the time of year, the homonchus really likes warm, hot, humid and cli climates. So if it's really dry outside, um, typically not that big of a concern, but, um, or if it's incredibly hot. So if you get down to some of the Gulf states in the summertime, um, homonchus likes the heat, but sometimes the heat's a little bit too much. So you get in areas in Louisiana and Mississippi where you actually get a summertime hypobiosis because it, it gets too hot in some of those areas. So environment, climate factors, uh, um, really I, I start thinking about immune competence and how um, those things happen. So we think a lot about the time after lambing and when those lambs are born and how soon they're going to be going out and grazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, we would be remiss to talk about hamacus and, and uh, parasites if we didn't discuss a bit about the latest treatment recommendations. So what are kind of the latest uh, strategies, uh, best management practices, if you will, for treatment of animals that have a high worm burden. So I think we are all at some point told to rotate your dewormers and be on constant rotation because that kind of kept the worms on their toes. They never knew what was coming. Um, in fact, every time that you deworm the, your animals, you're changing the worm population. So if you think about it, when you deworm animals, you're selecting for worms that are resistant to that drug because they're the only ones that are going to be able to mate and generate progeny in the next generation. You keep doing that over and over and over again, you develop resistance. So one of our big um, motivate or one of our big recommendations now is to stay with one drug until it doesn't work anymore. And one way to figure out if this is working or not working, if you're concerned about drug efficacy, doing a fecal A count when you deworm and another one two weeks later and utilizing any of those sites or doing the fecal A counts yourself are a good way to measure drug efficacy. If you run into situations where you've got major loads and you have a, a very resistant population, we're now recommending that producers start considering um, using multiple drugs at the same time. So that certainly does not mean that you're mixing them. You're just giving three different dewormers out of three different tubes, right? So at the same deworming time. Um, and, and the way that works is that the genetics for resistance to a different drug are different for each drug. So the genes that are involved in resistance to um, uh, valvazin or panicure or safeguard are different than what is there for ivermec or cytectin 
which is different again for um, something like prohibit. So utilizing all three of those increases the drug efficacy. So if two drugs have moderate efficacy combined together or given at the same time, we'll have a higher efficacy. So that's, that's the idea with that. And that you can get some of those recommendations and how to go about doing that through the consortium website as well. Okay. What is that website? Just while we're talking about it. It is warmx.info. Perfect. Okay. So you, you mentioned something about uh, doing a fecal egg count before and after to kind of determine if your treatment worked. Uh, what is the, what is the threshold uh, for fecal egg count that you could say, Hey, this did work or no, this didn't. So right now we're looking at anything less than 90% uh, fecal egg count reduction is moderate. You have a moderate level of resistance. So from 60% reduction to 96% reduction is moderate resistance. Anything below that or less than 60 is you have a high level of resistance to that dewormer. Now, is there a problem with treating animals that don't necessarily need it? Yeah. So let's get back to this idea of every time you deworm, you change the worm population. So if you deworm everybody all the time, there's no place for worms that are susceptible to drugs to mate. So we kind of have to be worm farmers a little bit. We have to think about this from kind of a, a keep coal situation. Which ones do we want to keep? So we want to keep worms that have genetics for susceptibility. And the only way to do that is to not deworm a percentage of the animals that you're doing or that you're deworming. So if you're using FAMACHA, and that's the whole purpose behind FAMACHA is providing what's called refugia or a refuge for those genetics to uh, be propagated. Because the, the infection doesn't expand inside the host. It's not like a bacterial infection or a bacteria multiply inside the host. These just mate and then shed eggs. And for the animal to become more infected, they have to eat more infective larvae. So um, I think we, we have to become worm breeders a little bit and thinking about this. So leaving a group of animals open or not treated is the refuge and the refugia and allows for those susceptible genetics to maintain within the, the worm population. Right. Cause then those, those susceptible worms intermix with Correct. those worms that you were from the animals that were treated. And then it keeps that resistance level. So they dilute the resistance. Right. Okay. Yeah, right. exactly. Okay. So in addition to proper anthelmintic use and, and maybe even combination dewormers, what other management strategies should producers follow that can help alleviate problems from hamacus. Okay, so some of the things that we've been studying in the last few years is is looking at supplementation. And I think a lot of us that are grazing think that we all have the best pastures anywhere in the world. And we've got these high quality pastures that are out there and we've got the forage test to prove it. What the animal consumes and what the forage test tells you are not always the same thing. And that's going to highly depend. And so the forage test that was done three weeks ago is different than the forage that they're eating three weeks later. So there are going to be differences with that. And I think one way to, to deal with the nutritional issue of this is to maintain a level of supplementation in the lambs, particularly in lambs, um, 
to make sure that they've got enough energy and enough protein to manage parasite infections on their own. Now, we've done some studies with Suffolk lambs looking at 1% of body weight supplementation versus two. Guess what? When you give them a little bit more feed, they do better. And that's not surprisingly shocking. But then we change the source of the protein <clears throat> or the type of <clears throat> the type of protein that we're using. So instead of using soybean meals, the primary source of protein, we added more fish meal or more rumen bypass protein. And in doing that, keeping it at a 1% or 2% uh, supplementation rate didn't change anything. We actually found that the lambs that were supplemented with fish meal actually had a lower fecal egg count than lambs that were supplemented with corn soy um, a mixed supplementation. So there are some protein things and there are some nutritional things that we can do to manage animals a little bit better while they're grazing. So we're still forcing them to graze. We're not giving them three, four, five percent of body weight. They're still out there grazing, but we're giving them enough to compensate for what the worms are taking away from them. Now, if you go to the nutritional catalogs or the nutritional, um, all the tables and the sheep um, NRC guide, it's going to tell you weight and average daily gain and sex and all of these different features that affect nutritional status in animals. What they don't have in there is how much more energy a parasitized lamb needs than a non-parasitized lamb. And it they they do a good job in the introductory section to that to those tables to say that parasitized lambs need more energy. How much more, you don't know. So it's kind of the difference between the art and science of, of feeding. So that's one thing. Um, I also think that the way you graze can have a big impact on um, the way the animals are parasitized or, or managing parasites. So a leader follower situation where lambs are always grazing in front of ewes. Um, so you don't have lambs that are more sensitive and ewes that are a little bit more resistant just because they have more body mass to give up to a parasite infection. Um, is a good approach to that and also rotating between pastures. So just depends. I mean, we, uh, there's been some people that have done one day rotations and if you've got enough electronet fence to do that and the labor to do that, by all means, I mean, that's a great approach because you're, it's really about avoidance grazing at that point. So the sheep are never going to graze down low enough to really pick up a lot of parasites, but then you have to do a lot of mowing. So there's, there's trade-offs with every single one of these. So we've talked, you know, there's uh, rotational grazing, nutritional supplementation, implementing different breeds that have more parasite resistance than other breeds. Uh, the Katahdin breeds experiencing a lot of popularity across the United States right now. And that's probably one of the reasons why. Um, and then uh, maybe even using some copper, um, copper oxide uh, bolus treatments as well. So you're going, I think in some areas in the U.S. Um, are probably a little bit more copper deficient than we think they are. But there's feed companies. Uh, I think every feed company has been burned at some level by um, copper toxicity. So we have to be real careful with the copper um, conversation with that. But at the same time, using a copper bolus might bring those animals up to a normal copper level. And copper is also toxic to the parasite. So whatever's you, typically whatever's toxic to the host is also toxic to the parasite. And because they're coming in direct contact with them, they can, uh, it can have both an anthelmintic effect or, or a deworming effect and a nutritional effect on the animals by bringing those animals back up to a normal copper level. Okay. 
So we've, we've touched on how to identify an infection and what producers should do in the immediate future to, to resolve that issue. But how about long term? What steps should be taken to combat worm problems as we look you know, into the future? Well, so I think the big thing is to realize that there's we can't rely on drug companies and researchers really to to, to identify those big new drugs, right? Um, even the new drugs that have come out in other parts of the world um, have developed resistance very quickly. So, um, like Monipantil or any of the AAD drugs, they've already have resistance to them. So, if you're waiting for the next drug you might end up suffocating just waiting breathlessly for the new, for the next new drug to come out. I really think that we have to get back to some of the basics of, of stockmanship and how we go about managing those animals without the need for excessive drugs. And, and one way to do this is getting back to be able to select animals that are performing better with that and utilization of um, NSIP breeding values for parasites, um, uh, reduction or or fecal egg count reduction, and I think that's one thing that can really drive this long term. So this becomes less of a of an acute problem and more of just a chronic thing that we deal with on a de- on a on an annual basis, and it's not detrimental to the entire flock. So selection for parasite resistance, even within a breed that isn't necessarily historically considered a parasite resistant breed. There are those individuals that are within those breeds that are better at that than others. And I've seen it with Suffolk sheep in Maine. Um, we'd always have those ewes that would never require deworming in the summertime. And they're out there. We just have to find them. Sure. Well, I know you've done a lot of, of research in that area. Why, why are some breeds or, or the animals within breed? more effective at defending themselves against internal parasites. Is that a, is that immune system, a more effective immune system, or is there something else at play? So, you know, I started out in my training more as a geneticist until I realized that, that I wasn't a good geneticist. So I was a better immunologist than I was ever was a geneticist, but to understand any of the genetics, you had to start digging into the immunology and really pulling apart those differences. So we were able to use St. Croix sheep, and use them as a model of, this is what everything looks like when immune responses are perfect against the parasite. So when we look at St. Croix sheep, they developed on an island in the Caribbean. It is warm, moist, and and humid, and it's hot and humid all year long. So their average temperature is 81 degrees every day of the year. They've got high rainfall. They've had sheep there that had to co-evolve with the parasite. So if they didn't survive, they died. The only ones that's, that hung on were the sheep that generated resistance to the parasite. So what we started doing is looking at what are the early immune events that are occurring in St. Croix sheep. So at the time I started doing this, this is during my uh, time at Virginia Tech, we were taking St. Croix and then comparing them to a three-way cross that's very similar to a polypay type sheep. And what happens in those St. Croix sheep is they generate this very robust immune response to the larvae and don't allow the larvae to establish in the abomasum of the sheep. So by seven days after infection, they have, you know, these lambs were given 10,000 larvae. On average, they have 16. And then you compare that to the polypase 
or the polypay type sheep, and they're in the hundreds of worms that are present in their gut. So that alone tells you one thing. The other thing is that you get all of these immune activation. So it's antibody, it's cells, it's um, um, uh, cells that are getting into tissue in that area and affecting changes in those animals that are going on. It's the development of their lymph nodes. Their lymph nodes are going to grow at this crazy level until day seven after infection. And then they actually start to recede by day 10. What's interesting, we did some follow-up studies on this, and the Suffolk sheep don't really respond until you get to day 10. So while the St. Croix respond at day three, the Suffolk's don't respond till day 10. So there's a seven-day delay. We started identifying all of these days of delay in response, and it's over, and it's very consistent and very repeatable in terms of delaying in that response. Then we start translating that over into some Katahdin sheep. And I had a student that was doing a project a couple years ago where we were using sheep with really that had very poor breeding values for parasite resistance. So in the Katahdin sheep, they would be strong positives for fecal egg count reduction. And they had, and these rams had a, a lot of progeny and had very good numbers. They were very accurate numbers. And then alternatively, we used ones that were strong negatives with high accuracy, but the sheep had a kind of a reasonable Katahdin hair index. So they weren't just good at one thing or the other. They were just kind of average sheep, but they were exceptional, either very resistant or very susceptible. The lambs from those matings, we found that if you were from a sire with a very low breeding value, which is desirable, those lambs had greater survivability to weaning. And it had nothing to do with parasites. So this was taken seven days after birth. So it was none of the garbage that happens around lambing. Um, this, these lambs were dying from coccidia, from respiratory disease, from other things other than parasitism. Um, but they, I, I think that first year that we had about 10% death loss in that group, we had a 30% death loss in the high sire group. And that was striking to us, and the station manager didn't really want to participate in this much longer after that. But we've also found out that we had a big Clostridium A outbreak that year. So even in a very dirty environment, animals that were bred for more parasite resistance seemed to have more disease resistance, which was really fascinating to us. So we, we kind of carried that work on over the next couple of years and kept breeding. You know, instead of just using the sire side, we started mating sires, high sires with high use, uh -huh. uh, low sires with low use. And then we still get that difference every year. We're at five to 7% death loss in the low group we're at 14 to 20% death loss in the high group. And just seeing those differences there tell you that there's a genetic component to immunity and that by selecting for fecal egg count or for parasite resistance, we also may be selecting for some disease resistance. So we've done some of that work. We're also looking at a ton of uh, different immune effector functions that are different. So we have found and identified a receptor that is involved in both uh, bacterial infections and viral infections um, that is that has a different structure in Suffolk sheep versus St. Croix sheep. So that structure, that difference in the structure may be one of the reasons why there's a delay in some of these responses. 
And we've also done work with Texel sheep. And this is where it gets interesting because some of the resistant breeds have a different mechanism of resistance. So the St. Croix sheep really attacked the larval stage of the parasite. Then when we did, um, we started looking at fecal A counts in Texel sheep. In Texel sheep, their fecal A counts almost came up as low as the St. Croix's when we were doing an artificial infection. We we're laming everything in a barn and not letting them out on grass. Um, their fecal A counts looked up very similar to the St. Croix, but the Suffolk were still a, a lot higher. So we were trying to get at what was there. Do they have the same mechanism of resistance that the St. Croix do? So we did an experiment using uh, some, some Texels and, and Suffolk sheep and found that the Texels will allow larvae to establish and become adults. So when we killed the Suffolk sheep and the, and the Texel sheep, there was no difference in the worm burden between the animals, but their fecal A counts were drastically different, which means that the immune response in the Texel sheep is more oriented to preventing adult mating, fecundity, egg production. We found that there was more antibody generated to egg stage of the parasite. So it was attacking the egg. Um, and, and deleting some of the eggs that were being shed. We also found a bunch of cells that were accumulating around the, the pore on the females where they would actually lay eggs from. So we had this, we were able to take some of the worms out of the Texel sheep and then put cells, well, we took worms out of an infected animal and put cells from Texel sheep and Suffolk sheep in there the Texel sheep bound the ovipositor on the female adult homonchus contortus worm and the larvae actually developed inside of her. And when they develop into larvae inside the female, they never go out into the world, right? So that was, that was really fascinating. So Texel sheep have this level of parasite resistance, but their mechanism of resistance is very different than the St. Croix. So that, those are some of the other things that we've been doing with that. And then we look at uh, a lot of stuff with, we're now kind of migrating towards understanding how disease resistance is improved with selection for fecal egg count, EBBs. That's fascinating. I mean, all of that work is fascinating, but especially, I mean, that's huge. If, if the fecal egg count breeding value can be used to select for healthier sheep in, in general. I mean, how, how do you see that? impacting the sheep industry and animal selection in the future, especially a future where uh, treatments and, and uh, identifying treatments is going to be more challenging. Well, that's, that's what I was thinking. The second that we started seeing those data come out a few years ago, my mind was already rolling in that direction. So my, my dad still raises sheep in Northern California. And, you know, I, I think everybody's pretty aware of the fact that most of the drugs that we use on a regular basis are going to a prescription only status and having that connection with the veterinarian to be able to get to those drugs is going to be critical. One of the things that I see with this is that for once in a, in kind of a long time, the sheep industry may be leading some of the other industries in identifying animals that are more disease resistant. So the, the search is on with cattle, swine, poultry, um, dairy cattle, they are really pushing, trying to identify some trait that's already being measured that links with any kind of disease resistance or improved immune function. We already have it. 
And I think the fecal A count breeding at, as a sheep person, it's really excited to be, right. I'm, I'm excited to be on the forefront of this instead of catching up with another right. species. Yeah. Um, it's exciting to be on the forefront of this. We may have that marker already and we may be sitting on that. Um, so to me, the future of this may be um, um, either some incentive program through the government. If you are selecting, if you're using fecal account breeding values to select those animals, you may, and we've got some documentation that it's going to reduce antibiotic usage. This may be a fundamental part of antibiotic stewardship moving into the future. So I, I think that there's some value, um, some other legislators or people that are thinking of that, of this at a higher level than my research capacity, either through ASI or something else. I think this is a, an important thing that we can utilize this research data to affect some policy. That's amazing. I mean, I think the next question right there is, you know, if, for producers that are not in NSIP already, what do they need to do to start getting those breeding values? I mean, obviously enrolling in the program, but what are kind of those first steps that they should uh, get ready for to start getting that fecal account breeding value? So let's talk about the different types of producers, right? So not everybody is a purebred seed stock producer, and I get that. Utilizing RAMs with data is just mitigating risk. All you're doing is you are reducing the amount of risk associated with your selection strategies. So having that extra piece of information, just knowing that when I took rams and made and random mated them to use, um, even though they're within the same breed, I was getting that ram effect that was coming in lambs that were either more parasite resistant because of their sire or more parasite susceptible because of their sire. So identifying and utilizing NSIP RAMs for that. And I think that we all realize at some level that while we love the data that comes from NSIP, entering animals and getting enrolled in NSIP can almost be like an insurmountable event that just seems almost impossible to do. Finding a person that is regionally close to you or local to you that's already in it that can be your kind of mentor you through the process and i i think that we're also lucky with nsip to have rusty um leading that group he's i think i've sent a lot of producers to him he will sit down with you and walk you through step by step on how to enroll animals in nsip how to collect data how to report those data how to use pedigree master and those, those type of things. On my website through uh, West Virginia University, we also have a PowerPoint that will walk in, and it's geared towards Texel producers, but it, you can replace Texel with any breed. It will walk you through how to enroll into NSIP and how to submit your data. And I think that we've got a lot of new and young extension faculty across the country that are very excited about NSIP and want to help producers start getting their animals enrolled in that. Now we've got some, now some of these data aren't available in every breed. So I think with fecal egg count, the more data that we collect with this, the more we're gonna have data available to producers. So just within the last two or three years, we've got uh, fecal egg count breeding values for Dorpers, um, for Texels, and for some of the Western Whiteface or Western Range breeds. So those are some positive things that we're moving forward. So we've got fecal egg count breeding values and Rambolets. I don't think they've had them yet for Targis, but they're there for Polypase. 
Um, so there's some real advantage in utilizing those data. And we've we've actually started some studies using polypay sheep and using some some samples from the University of Wisconsin and have found that animals that have lower breeding values, lower fecal lake count breeding values that are the more desirable ones also have higher circulating antibody. And it's just one of those things that's trending with that um, with that selection um, preference. Well, you said it, uh, you know, NSIP can be utilized in a variety of ways. Maybe you are a seed stock producer uh, and you want to enroll in that program, or maybe you're a commercial producer that just wants to buy rams or breeding stock that have that data and utilize it. And that kind of led me to the next question I want to ask. You know, last week, I actually had the opportunity to, to come out your direction and attend uh, the Virginia Tech Forest forage-based RAM test. And, and you and, and with some colleagues at Virginia Tech uh, have helped organize this this test for Katahdin RAMs or for, I don't, maybe it's not just specifically Katahdin, but for RAMs uh, that really evaluates um, their uh, fecal egg count information and some growth information. And then those RAMs are offered for auction at the end of the test. Uh, can you can you share with us a little bit about kind of the motivating factors for getting that test organized? Uh, you know, I, I did a rough job of describing it. Um, so maybe you can fill into some of the details uh, that, that go into that. Yeah. So I, it's been a while since it started. I think it started about 10 or 11 years ago. Um, the, um, the experiment station down in Southwest Virginia was utilizing some, Katahdin sheep and and Dr. Nodder at the time had uh, had worked to upgrade the flock and he was using some St. Croix and Suffolk crossbred sheep to upgrade the Katahdins that were there and then slowly but surely we had this Katahdin flock that was that was emanating from this from this site. Um, one of the big things that happened around the same time was there was some um, some federal money that was available to transition away from tobacco. Um, and I, I think that Dr. Greiner at Virginia Tech and, and the folks down there were able to capture some of that money and to start getting producers in, in that area uh, thinking about utilizing Katahdin sheep or, 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 or breeding Katahdin sheep for sales. There's a lot of Katahdin sheep down in that part of, the, in that part of Virginia. And I think at one point there's somewhere around 10,000 ewes down in that area um, that were all Katahdin. So they're, they really kind of took off there and then we had the station we had the animals that were there i think they all kind of got together and said well we could do a grass-based performance test um and at that point uh, dr zajak was still at the vet school at virginia tech and i think we all just kind of sit there and said well how are we going to manage infection in animals and make sure that everybody gets infected but not so infected that they die right and that's you you're doing a performance test on somebody else's animals. One of the things you want to, you want to test them without killing them. So, um, helps for sustainability. Correct. So we, um, she really kind of emphasized just using 5,000 larvae. So when the Rams come in, they get dewormed, make sure that everybody's starting from a clean slate and then they'll get 5,000 larvae. After that, whatever they're picking up is what's on the pasture there. And speaking from my own experience, those pastures are loaded. And in the summertime in Southwest Virginia, man, it is hot and it is humid. And 
you know, working animals in the early morning is about the only time that you want to be able, that you want to do that. So you're in a highly parasitized environment. You're in an environment that will test those animals. And the test started out pretty small, but what was interesting is that the prices that were coming from that test were staying significantly high. And I think that's something that we've been working on at least over the past couple years is to make sure that we can get some of that breeding stock out to producers without having to take a loan out to buy a ram from the from the test. But also making sure that there's enough animals and that we are so that the animals that we're selling through the test are still of quality. And we've got a, a phenomenal group of producers that contribute to the tests that come from all over the country. So I think they've got 13 or 14 different states that participate in the test. And they've got a lot of producers that are interested in testing and getting this stuff out there. And also producers that are involved. We have a mix of NSIP producers and non-NSIP producers. And one of the things that um, we've been able to see over the last few years on the test is that rams coming from NSIP flocks are, tend are tending to bring a little bit more money than rams from non-NSIP flocks. So there's another reason to do that. But this is one of the, I think it's the only test in the country um, that's doing any kind of um, uh, parasite infection while they're grazing, at least with sheep. With goats, there's one out in Oklahoma, and then we do a goat test here where we infect the animals. But with sheep, that's one of the few tests in the country that's doing that. That's really neat. Uh, now, how, how else have you seen that, you know, that RAM test evolve? Um, have you seen RAMs, you know, improve over the years in terms of, of their parasite resistance and, and fecal account in the duration that it's been running for the last decade? Yeah, I mean... So Lee, the, the station manager there, his cutoff for deworming animals is when you have a FAMACHA score of three. So if you're on this performance test and your ram has a FAMACHA score of three, it's getting dewormed. What has happened over time is that there's more of these rams that are getting through the test with fecal A counts of zero. And it's one problem that we kind of ran into this year is we had eight rams that had a fecal egg count of zero across the entire test. So people started questioning, well, did was the, the initial infective larvae, were they good? Did they just get a bad right. dose of larvae? Then I kept saying, well, they're eating grass on past, the same pasture that everybody else is grazing. They had opportunity to get infected. Yeah. Um, I just think that over time, we've got animals that have gotten better at being parasite resistant and also gotten better at being better sheep. So we're getting better growth rates. We're getting better muscling. We're getting better quality of sheep that are coming through there that aren't just very parasite resistant. Um, they're they're just a better holistic animal, right? Right. And so, potentially a, a healthier sheep a healthy all the way around. Too. That's right. Yep. yep. Absolutely. That's really neat. All right, Dr. Badgers, this has been uh, an incredible discussion. Uh, all the things that you have going on is are amazing and, and really cool to hear about. Uh, where can folks go to get more information, either about your research program or just more parasite management in small ruminants? Uh, let's yeah, if you could share some of that, that'd be great. So parasite management and small ruminants, if you're looking for kind of the mecca of information online, it's wormx.info. So each one of us who are on the consortium 
are tasked with writing um, fact sheets or just small documents to do stuff like that. I think that that is a great resource. And there's a variety of different topics, whether it be nutrition, management, parasitology, um, all of those things are on there in very digestible form. So it's not written, they're written by, by PhDs, but they're written for consumption. And they're written at a level that is that is easy to understand. And I think that everybody who is on that committee is all very willing and open to help and um, for any producer anywhere across the country. So I think that's the first thing. I think that you guys at, at uh, Texas A&M do a great job in promoting the things that are going on there and keeping up and following you guys on Facebook has been fun for me to watch and, and see how you guys do things a little bit different than we do. Um, so I always kind of promote people to, to follow that. Um, Susan Shanian from the University of Maryland runs the Sheep 101 website and also helps a lot with the consortium part of it and, and for basic information and a, a wide variety of information. Her website's phenomenal. And then what I have on my website at the university is just uh, a few things about what we're doing with the research, um, particularly some Katahdin crossbreeding projects or some of the parasite immunology stuff that we do here, which may or may not be informative to the to the everyday producer, but at least give you an idea of kind of the research aims that we are addressing. Right. Awesome. Any last take home messages from our discussion today? Well, I think the big take home thing with this is that this isn't an insurmountable process that managing parasites in your flock just is going to take you back to um, some basic stockmanship things, looking at animals, evaluating the animals, just spending some time on a five gallon bucket watching animals, I, I think is one of the big things that we can do with this. And then, you know, making an educated approach to how you're going to manage this. We're not going to deworm everybody. We're going to use selective deworming. Um, we're going to follow some of the recommendations from the consortium about rot about not rotating dewormers, but sticking with one until it doesn't work and utilizing FAMACHA. I think that's a, I mean, I'll be a broken record on that all day long. Utilizing FAMACHA works. Um, Australians don't use FAMACHA, but I, I spoke with a researcher there a couple of years ago. He was able to take somebody's flock who had, they're grazing 40,000 ewes, he took a thousand ewes for eight years and was able to get them to have a fecal egg count reduction. It started at about 20% fecal egg count reduction. So the, and is multi-drug resistant to about 70% over eight years just by using FAMACHA. Oh, wow. So that there are little anecdotal messages out there about using FAMACHA and that, that really does work. Awesome. And keep selecting, you know, try NSIP, just stick your toe on the water and, and go slow and ask for help. We're all here to help you. All right. Great. Well, uh, again, fantastic information today. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us and to do this podcast. Parasites are indeed an industry-wide problem, uh, admittedly probably a, a bigger problem for some than others, but certainly something that can affect us all uh, on some level. And, and your insight today has been great. So thank you again, Dr. Bowdridge. So uh, listeners, Thanks for tuning back in to this edition of Research Update. We greatly appreciate you being with us each month as we cover uh, the hottest topics in the U.S. sheep industry. Please help us spread the word uh, by sharing this episode and any other episodes you find insightful on your social media accounts. But until next time, remember, eat lamb, 
werewolf, and just don't forget about that tiny battlefield in the fourth compartment of your sheep's ruminant stomach. It may just be the most important fight you can help your flock win. Have a nice day.